All of us can fall into trying to make sense of the unknown, drawn towards an insight, a theory or a story that seems just far-fetched enough to maybe be true. But what makes rational people believe irrational things? I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness and maybe the unknown of what's around us. As someone who studies behavioural science, today's guest, well, is kind of akin to chatting to an intellectual hero. It's highly possible that you haven't come across Dan Ariely's work, but his research drives much of what we know about irrational behaviour. Dan Ariely is a Professor of Psychology and Behavioural Economics at Duke University. His research is dedicated to answering questions about irrational behaviour and helping people to live more sensible, even if we're not rational. Dan has advised governments in South Africa, the Netherlands, Brazil, United Kingdom, US, Saudi Arabia and Israel. He's the founding member of the Centre for Advanced Hindsight, co-creator of film documentary Dishonesty, The Truth About Lies and a three-time New York best-selling author. This conversation focuses on Dan's latest book, Misbelief, which is a more personal deep dive into an experience that Dan himself faced through the COVID years with untruths being shared about him and his research. Believing that he could just convince people that these things weren't true led him down the path by identifying what he calls the funnel of misbelief. At the age of 17 and as he was growing up in Israel, Dan was involved in an accident that left him with severe burns to 70% of his body. Whilst we don't dive into this experience in this conversation, I wanted to share that with you because it provides context, first of all, to his half beard, which you might see in the visuals, which, which is a result of repaired skin on his face, and also provides a really important insight into where Dan's personal resilience and tolerance for the uncomfortable comes from. This conversation is insightful, fascinating, and practical for all of us as we navigate the unknown. Take a trip into understanding the funnel of misbelief with Dan Ariely. Dan, as a behavioural economist, you've spent your career exploring human behaviour, specifically looking at tendencies towards irrationality, decision-making, dishonesty, motivation. Tell me what drove you into this field of study? Yes, I think I think the word drove is, is actually very appropriate here compared to, like, people usually just use drove, but this one is, is driving. So it was really kind of a, an amazing an amazing time like like roll back the time to early covid early 2020 and lots of terrible things are happening but i feel that i'm the height of my career and why do i feel i'm at the height of my career because lots of people are realizing how important social science is all of a sudden question come like how do we ask people to wear masks and how do we ask people to restrict their visits to the supermarket and what do we do with distant education and distant work and furlough? And what do we do with releasing prisoners? And what do we do with domestic violence? And like the number of questions were incredible. Even, even simple things like do we give people fines or not? Uh, or do we even give them rewards? And anyway, I, I feel I'm useful. You know, we all want to be useful. Like it feels tremendously satisfying to say, okay. And I feel in those days that I am useful. I get calls from all over the world. I feel I'm, I'm helping a lot and so on. And this goes on for a while. And then in July, I get this email that says, Dan, what happened to you? Uh, when did you become this person? And I say, what kind of person? What do you mean? 
and I get back a long list of, of links and I'll just describe one of them. Uh, that link describes, shows pictures of me in hospital. So, so as you know, I was, I was badly burned. 70% of my body was covered with scar. This is why I don't have hair on the right side of my, my face and lots of other uh, parts of my body. But anyway, uh, this video starts with, with pictures of me in hospital. True. Three years. True. 70% burns. True. And then it goes on to say that because of that, uh, I started hating healthy people. <laughs> Not so true. Um, and that I joined the cabal Bill Gates and the Illuminati in order to try and kill as many healthy people as possible. And that's why the pandemic is and the... And the the vaccines that will come at that time, there's no vaccines yet, are all designed for that. The, the other links had different stories with different approaches, but the system was the same, right? Here is an evil, a, a truly evil guy in a very, very deep way. And uh, my first instinct was to start and connecting with some of those people and correct their false impression. But, but my second instinct was better, and I called a few people in PR, people who kind of understand these things and so on. And, and I, felt, I felt I was very wise for calling these people. I felt I was very wise for calling for advice, and I called for advice, and everybody's advice was the same. Don't touch it. Don't get close. Stay away. But then I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm very proud that I had the wisdom to seek advice, and I'm um, ignore it. <laughs> less proud that I <laughs> that I ignored it. I I just felt that it can't be. I felt, look, if I only explain what was really happening, uh, people would be convinced. <laughs> and of course, they were right, and I was wrong. And and I spent the next uh, month calling people invited some people to meet me outside, of course, but somewhere outside. Uh, I joined discussions, the Telegram, groups, panels, Zooms, all kinds of things, and I just failed. <laughs> I just, uh, uh, there was one person I think I convinced a little bit, but mostly I just did damage. <laughs> it was terrible. It was terrible. It was also very, very terrible because I would, I would get all of these accusations and I would deal with them all the time, and it was... It was awful. It was just awful. And, and you know, we, we all have met with, with misbelievers, right? Uh, some of them are in our social and family circles and, and people that, that five years ago we said, oh, we're just the same. We, we agree on most things. And now we look at them and we say, uh, are we the same species? Like it's, a, it's an amazing thing. But, you know, all of this is usually about other things. But when I talk to somebody, like imagine you and I, and I say, but... But, you know, I'm not that person. And here is something that I didn't do. And, like, I feel I'm an expert on me. And no matter how much somebody else knows me, they're not experts on me. And I have all the evidence. And I showed people my calendar. And I shared all kinds of information. And, and basically, I couldn't get them to change. And th there is something incredibly difficult in that. So, so forget the emotional difficulty. Uh, but by the way, one of the things that, that I created was that I, I started getting uh, being aware of things and I started getting more death threats. Uh, in the beginning, I would get death threats almost every day. The last one I got now was like almost almost two weeks ago, so it's getting less frequent. Um, but this this attempt to to say something about me to somebody who just would not buy uh, that that version was very very 
it, it kind of shatters, it, it, it shatters me in some deep ways. And then after a month, I, I gave up. Slow learner, but I gave up. Uh, but, I, but I had to understand it. I had to understand it. I felt that we have something big and important that we don't understand with a tremendous uh, potential for, for bad, bad for the people, bad for their friends and family, and also bad for society. So for the next two years, I basically spent time in some of the, um, the worst corners of the internet and discussion with some serious misbelievers and uh, followed all kinds of links of information and, and so on. And, and this book is, is an outcome of that. It's a little bit of my story. It's mostly describing this funnel of misbelief, this process to take people that are like us. They don't just seem like us. They are like us. And get them to change, and then and I, then I talk a little bit about the implications to to society, and and if I had to say kind of what is the the first insight I had is that these people should not be discounted. They are wonderful, lovely, smart, uh, creative people, right? It's not that you could say, oh, it's a di-. no, and and these these misbeliefs should not be discounted. They are not for nothing. Nobody wakes up in the morning and say. I want to believe that uh, lizard people are controlling the earth and have a network of pedophilia, that nobody chooses that. That these misbeliefs are fulfilling some important psychological need. They're not necessarily, the, they're certainly not the healthiest way to deal with that need, but they, they fulfill a need. And, and when we look at them, we need to understand what was the need that these people had that was answered by this, by this complex uh, process. And, and the second insight I had was this machinery that captures our beliefs and, and redirect them into bad direction is very, very complex and very, very powerful. So think about the cookie. Uh, you can think about the cookie as a weaponized food that is designed to hijack our emotion. Perfect combination of sugar, fat, salt, that is designed to get us to crave them and then to crave more of them. Not for our long-term best interest, but for somebody else's best interest. But that's just capturing our taste. The, the funnel of misbelief is, is almost like a weaponized system that attaches almost every aspect of our psychology to get us down this path. And, you know, you could read this book like an introduction to psychology, right? There's so many different parts of psychology there, and they all kind of in, in different parts are, are attacking us and getting us to believe those uh, those things. There's so, I mean, there's so many different areas that I want to uh, jump off, um, even from what you've said. Your experience, putting the emotional <laughs> experience aside, just even cognitively, exploring human behaviour is not new for you. Exploring the irrational ways or unique ways that people are motivated is not new. It is the source of your career and your study. And yet there was an intrigue from the experience that you just described that was maybe greater than could be answered by your study to date. And therefore your ability to jump into that intrigue is fascinating to me. Um, And even to ignore the PR (laughs) people that say, no, just ignore it because that intrigue is so strong for you. Where does that capacity to be intrigued by human behaviour come from? So, you know, I, uh, and excuse the arrogance, but I think by now... 
my profession is also my nature. So I, I, I think I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a social scientist by nature. Mm. If you ever met me socially, you know, maybe when your husband visited, uh, he, I don't know if he remembers, but I talk about it in experiments, like, you know, my language, like people say, oh, I think this, I think that. I say, this experiment showed this, this experiment showed that. When people say, oh, I think this will happen. I say, here we do the experiment like this. So I, I talk in experiments. I also experiment in my own life. And I think for me, this was kind of like Mount Everest. It's painful. Mm. <laughs> it's difficult. You get out with uh, bruises and frostbites and uh, maybe lose some things, no, certainly lose some things in the, in the middle. But it's this intellectual adventure. Like, you know, Everest is a physical adventure and, and intellectual that get people to feel alive. And I think for me, this was, this is kind of my adventures. My, my adventure is adventures into understanding humanity. And, and it's very hard. When I say I didn't listen to them, I, I had to throw myself in. Like it was, it was like, okay, here's a big mystery. Here's a big thing. And, you know, another thing about, about being experimentalist at heart is that failing is okay because you learn a lot from failing. So even though, even though the first month was... <laughs> The, the failing was painful. I, I don't regret it. I don't say, oh, I, I no, because, because the failure teaches us a lot. Even, even, you know, for example, you know, we have this concept called scarcity mindset. And scarcity mindset, we usually think about in the area of poverty, when people who are in dire poverty spend some of their mental energy thinking about where the next meal would come, will I be able to pay rent and so on, and they have a diminished capacity for everything else. I had a scarcity mindset. I felt I was working on 80%. I was like feeling I was a little dumber. I couldn't focus to the same degree. Now, it was terrible, but I'm very grateful that I got to experience this, this stress in the back of my mind that I couldn't get rid of. It is such a, yes, I read the papers about it, but it's not the same. It's not what the same. You, what as, are you as like, grateful for? What, what is it that that experience I, gave you? I think that this is a, a, a human, it's a, it's a real important human condition. I think it's true where people are in poverty. I think it's true where people are worrying about somebody else's health. So now, now imagine that we want to do things like, I have, I have empathy with that state, right? If you, if you ask me like, can I solve a problem? So, you know, I, I'm a part of a big project, for example, in Brazil, in the favelas, that is trying to help with, with the terrible poverty there. Um, we have some big projects on end of life where people are facing all kinds of very stressful situations. What can we expect from people in those conditions? What would get them comfort? Or even for me, the difference between day and night, you know, when I was in the day and I was working, yes, I had these nagging thoughts, but I could mostly focus on my work, not as good and so on. But at night, it was terrible. You know, I had these recurring nightmares when I run around the world looking for a place with no hate to yeah. call home. You know, so everybody would have a different dream, but this, this feeling that I could control most of it in the day, but at night it just, it just burst. I think all of those are kind of important, important lessons to, to, to figure out, okay, so when I now... So let's just talk about the favela. When I was in this favela a few weeks ago, you know, I was trying to figure out if we had $1,000 per family, what should we spend it on? 
food, education, jobs, reducing violence, sewage. You know, the, the, the better insight I have, the better empathy, like the better I can transform myself into their mindset, and I can't really do that, but the better I can do it, the more I can tr- figure out what, what solutions might be, mm-hmm. uh, might be relevant. So, so that's, that's what I'm saying by I'm grateful mm-hmm. for it. I think uh, me, you know, in, in the research process, uh, the research is very specific. You set up the experiment and it goes in a very, very designed way. But how you come up with a good experiment? That's the place where it's our intuition and creativity and so on. And um, the better I am as, a, as an empathy and creativity machine, the better these experiments would be. So that's what I mean. Yes, yeah. Tough experience, but, but to be able to have, put yourself in, in people's shoes uh, and to have that visceral experience, yeah, I can imagine really informs a whole range of different areas in the work that you do. You talk about the difference between, you use that term misbelief quite intentionally uh, and misbelievers as opposed to conspiracy theorists or people that are just making things up. How, why is it important, I think, from a language point of view to use that term misbelief? And you mentioned before yeah. that all of us have this capacity. Why is that important? That's right. so, so first of all, I think that any derogatory language is not helpful in moving forward. That's, that's, that's one. The second thing is, for me, a misbelief is not just about the outside world. It's also about the inside world. So imagine that I hold a belief that is not accepted by most people and by most experts. Uh, that's one aspect of it. But the second aspect of it is that it's a core belief for me. So it's not just it exists, it's a core belief for me. And not only it's a core belief, it's a lens from which I see other things. And, and that's important. Let's take something, uh, I don't know, something that is not that important. Uh, whether it's better to have coffee or tea. I like coffee, some people like tea. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm holding a wrong belief about this. That's fine. It's not a central tendency. It's not something that I view to, to, to view the rest of, of life. On the other hand, if I think, and I'm just taking an example, if I think that the world is flat, and that's, that now defines a lot of who I am, and you know, political opinions and so on could be even stronger. Mm-hmm. And it's a lens from which I view other things. Not, not the flatness of the earth, but I think that NASA is hiding things and the government is hiding things. And every school is designed to teach our kids things that they don't see. And, and now my worldview is something very wrong is happening and I view everything this way. So last week I was on some radio show and I talked about misbelief. And after that, uh, somebody wrote me and he described a salmonella poisoning that happened in his town. And he asked me, why do I think that happened? And I said, probably somebody didn't wash something and uh, some bacteria developed and I hope they'll figure it out and they'll fix it and maybe they'll fix some other potential places for mistakes. But this guy doesn't let it go like this. Like for him, there's no mistakes. It's all intentional. He thought that the company that made this food has one kind of political view and the people in the town that he's living in have the opposite political view. And in his mind, this was intentional. Now, think about what would happen if you looked at every mistake and interpreted it as this is intentional. 
But by the way, when I, when I understood this, I also started having a lot of empathy for the misbelievers. Like imagine somebody believes in God. God is generally good, generally cares about us. Sometimes there's a devil in the picture, but mostly it's kind of good news. But if you believe in, in misbeliefs, and you believe that there's a cabal of pedophile that is trying to plant a G5 in you and get your kids, like just think about what an awful way this is to wake up. Mm. So that when I realized that, I said, you know, nobody would choose this. This, this is a, it's like an autoimmune disease. It's something that starts with a good, with <laughs> answering, fulfilling some, some need, but then goes haywire very, very quickly and actually decreases well-being dramatically. A lot of that is connected to a sense of fear and in the you talk about the funnel of misbelief and in particular yeah. the the four elements being emotional, cognitive, personality and social and that it's the blend, the mix of those that really can have yeah. people fall down the funnel of misbelief. The first one yeah. you talk about the role of stress and that can be like it's hugely emotional experience is a very unique experience but it's also we all experience stress so why is stress a catalyst or a starting point or what specifically about it may be yeah. the thing that falls down the funnel <laughs> that's right so so stress stress are the this is the 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 building blocks, this is the, 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 the ground to create. This is a necessary condition. It's not sufficient, but it's necessary. And, and we don't mean, oh, stress, oh, my goodness, I'm so busy, I'm not sure how I'll answer all my emails. We mean a stress of somebody who's saying, I don't understand how the world works, and I don't understand why I'm not doing better than I should. Why am I getting this hit? Why is it not working for me? And so on. And by the way, one of the best remedies against this kind of stress is social resilience, which of course during COVID we didn't have it as much, mm. right? We didn't have the, the, the regular social support that we're used to have. But, but what is it about stress? So the first thing about stress, this kind of stress, is it wants people to feel in control. They want a story. And I'll give you two very separate examples, then we'll move to, to mm. misbelief. Imagine fishermen. And imagine two tribes. Uh, one tribe is fishing in the sea, open seawater, in the ocean, and one is fishing in the lake. Which one of them has more predictable fishing experience? The conditions are just the same. The sea, mm. sometimes storms, sometimes not, sometimes the fish are going anyway. Which one of those two tribes develop more superstitions? The ocean. The deep ocean. <laughs> Why? Because unpredictable, we want a story, we want to explain things. There's another version. You know the term white noise. Usually white noise we refer to kind of just full spectrum of psh, kind of stuff like that. But we can also have a picture of white noise. Imagine a picture with black, white, and gray dots just randomly scattered. And I show you one of those. I say, do you see an image? You see any image hidden here? And then I show you another one and another one and another one. And the question is, in how many of them do you see an image? The more I stress you, the more you will see images. We are driven to explanations in all kinds of ways the moment we're stressed. Even when people go parachuting, as they get closer to jumping, they see more patterns in this black and white and gray dot. So there's a 
tremendous pressure to find a story, to feel in control, to feel that we understand, even, even if it's not real, because remember, the, the reason is it's not about understanding, it's about control. Now, not all stories are created equal. Some stories are better than others. What are good stories? A story with a villain. That's really a good story. Like, you know, superstitions are fine, but if you have a villain, that's better. Why is it better? Because now it's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. So we want stories. We want villains. And very interestingly, we want complex stories. Now, we know that usually people want simple stories. Why? Where's the complex story? Where's it coming from? Well, it's coming from the fact that if people feel like underdogs, like they feel society is looking down upon them, if they have a complex story, now they can feel superior. Oh, you think you understand the world? No, no, no. Let me tell you this. Bill Gates does this, does this. Does. And you don't understand this. And now I, I, I basically have reversed the tables from me feeling an underdog to, to feeling superior. So, so all of this is creating the first reason to adopt a complex narrative with a villain. Of course, later on, it keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. But, but that's the starting point. That sense of stress, wanting control. If there's a villain, then it, there's, it's not my fault can be a part of it or there's, there's nothing I can do. And then the complexity can fuel into that, that sense of, well, I know yeah. something that others don't, which is an in, intriguing piece. All of us have had times, and even as I was reading your book, there are times where I know I've believed something and I might take it to my husband or a really good friend and they'll go, I'm not so sure about that. And it's almost like I can feel myself getting sucked out of the funnel and going, oh, okay, you're right. But I just, like, I just wanted to be on top of this. <laughs> I felt like it was the answer. If there are family or friends around us who, who might be experiencing that unpredictable stress that's yeah. above and beyond a normal busyness and life, and starting to share some of these complex stories, what can we do? Because trying to convince someone that that's not true doesn't always work. <laughs> what could we do? The first thing that we shouldn't do is we shouldn't make fun of them. And, and the reason, and we'll come back to, to this when we come to the social element, is that ostracism is a terrible feeling. To feeling ostracized is a terrible feeling. And, and by the way, I've made mistakes there. Uh, in the past, I've made fun of people with all kinds of strange beliefs. And I thought I was making a little joke, and I'm sure they took it as a big, as a big offense. And that's something that just pushes people, pushes people away. So, so the first thing is not what to do, but what not to do. Don't ostracize. But if you ask the question of what do we do cognitively, so, so now we, we, we finished with stress and we say, okay, that we, we understand somebody's like this. The next part is the cognitive part. And, and here, there are, two, there are two interesting tricks. The first one is the very simple question of what would it take for you to change your mind? And, you know, usually we, we think that the right way to get somebody to change their mind is to argue with them. Here's another piece of information. Deal with that. But... Of course, we think that's good for other people, but if I ask you what has helped you ever change your mind, it has never been a direct attack no, on your I, beliefs. No, I right? will believe it even stronger. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> because 
because the moment people attack, we start defending. <laughs> and we start coming up with all the reasons why they're wrong. Mm. We don't even listen to what they said. We just, and, and we, could, we could, as you said, we could just convince ourselves even, even more in that. So, so the approach is not to attack, but to come from your side and say, oh, okay. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying, what would it take to change your mind? You, I'm not attacking. I'm not this. Like, and by the way, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting exercise for all of us to do, not just mm. for, for misbelievers, right? If you say... I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, what would it take to get me to change my mind that I'm wrong? Or I have this approach that I think is the right way to raise kids or to have a romantic evening with my significant other. And then you say, what would it take to change your mind? You say, oh, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm not as open-minded as I thought. The, the second approach is related to this. So in the cognitive component, there's you know, confirmation bias. We look just at the information that we want to confirm our hypothesis. There's motivated reasoning. We can take a piece of information and bend it so that we feel it supported our beliefs. But there's also an interesting gap between our knowledge and our confidence in our knowledge. And, and there's a couple of versions of this. The version I like the most is called the illusion of explanatory depth. And, and uh, consider the following demonstration. I come to people and I say, hey, do you understand how a flush toilet works? And people say, yes, of course. So on a scale from one to seven, how much you understand? And they give a number, a very high number. And then I say, luckily for you, I have all the pieces of a flush toilet here. Please assemble it. <laughs> and of course, nobody can assemble it. And, and then I, I say, and how much do you understand how a flush toilet works? And people say, not at all. Now, most of the experiments on the illusion of explanatory depth are not with something physical, but just with a description. Do you understand how a zipper works? Do you understand how a helicopter works? Do you understand how an elevator works? Do you understand how a virus works? And so on. And people say, yes, 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 this is this. And then you, you don't give them any information. You say, explain it to me. So you just said you understand how a helicopter works. Please explain it to me. And, and the process of explaining the details gets people to rec recognize that they don't really know. And, and that's a very nice approach. And what's interesting about the explanatory depth is that, let's say you have you know, an uncle that doesn't believe in, in, in COVID, let's say. And, and you don't want to attack COVID because it's too much of a sensitive topic. You can ask him to describe how a lock works. Uh, you know, the moment, the moment you shake now, of course, it's better to go directly at COVID, but if it's too sensitive, it turns out that when you shake this confidence, real knowledge gap, people generalize it for other things as well. So it's, you can even start with something uh, more innocuous and then hopefully move to, to something else. So That's so interesting that they, yeah, that what I think I know, but my confidence in it. And therefore, if I'm confident about flush toilets, or <laughs> then what else might, how that might transfer, that's, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's important to, to realize here, as we said, what's a misbelief? We say it's a very strongly held belief. The moment you can shake that belief. So if somebody believes that COVID is a pandemic with 100%, it's very different than if they believe it in 98%. Right? If you could say, yes, I think so. I'm almost sure, but maybe not. That's a huge step, right? The, because the, why? Because the conviction is the thing that creates the worldview. It's the thing that creates these tainted glasses. If you basically are 100% sure, then you know the government, NASA, 
if you're not 100% sure, it doesn't change you in a deep, in a deep way, mm-hmm. in, in the same way. As I was reading, the question around what's the difference between a misbelief and healthy scepticism. So I think from social sciences, my background is in psychology, yeah. part of our training is to look at things and go, maybe there's a different reason for this. And that can be the yeah. very same catalyst for conspiracy, government, <laughs> uh, you know, those kind of conclusions. Is conviction so, so the, no, the no, missing no. piece? No, 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 I don't. Yes, I don't think so. Hmm. I think healthy skepticism is great. Healthy skepticism is great, and I don't think it can lead to conspiracy theories. Because basically saying I'm not sure means that you're not taking this into as a central tendency of your life. Mm-hmm. So, so there's this uh, slightly arrogant term called intellectual humility. And intellectual humility is, is uh, uh, the ability to hold two hypotheses. This might be right, this might be wrong. Mm. I don't know, I'm not committing to, to any one of them. It's also about enjoying not knowing, right? And both of those, like, oh, like, you know, think about, like, in research, right? You say, oh, here's a mystery, I don't know. Like, let's, <laughs> let's say something simple, like, what is the right way to give kids allowances? Think, I don't know, and I'm really looking forward to the next five years of <laughs> slowly trying to get this going. Um, What's the, what's the right way for spouses to share bank accounts? One bank account, two, three, you know, let's, let's enjoy not knowing and, and, and the process of finding out. So I think the moment that not knowing is there in a real way, it cannot become a misbelief, in my version of misbelief. Mm-hmm. Because that basically means I'm not going to to look at the world from that perspective. I, I think it's right. You know, think about all things that we that we have, even strong opinions about them, but, but as long as we're not sure, they're not becoming this central tendency of our life. We hold ourselves open to maybe something else is possible right. and even where you said that uh, we can be okay with failure, we don't see it as failure, it's just information. Right. Even, even think about politics. I know that... In Australia, all the politicians are great. And there's no. <laughs> They're perfect. <laughs> they no, they there do the no right issues, thing all the time. <laughs> they do the right thing all the time. There's no. But you know, in the U.S., there's some there's some interesting issues. But you know, I think I think a while ago, people could have an opinion that says, you know, I am together with the Republicans on fiscal responsibility and on defense, and I believe like a Democrat on you know, whatever, poverty and, and inequality. And I, I'm not sure about, you know, where I stand on a government investment in infrastructure. I think we've eliminated that. We've eliminated it. Now it's, I am party first and I don't have these nuances anymore. Mm. Now you can see why politicians would want that because it means that once they have somebody, they don't have to worry about ever uh, making sure they vote for them, that it's kind mm-hmm. of built in. But from the process of the public, we have moved from talking about issues and having a nuanced view to saying, I am party A or party B, and, and that solves everything, right? And, and it's so strong that people don't even look at the issues anymore. Yeah, that ability to 
be curious and be open is a real skill and a key thing, regardless of where we're we're at. This is something. This is something, by the way, that I think academics are generally good at because we we practice it a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's a skill. You know, when when we talk about kids and skills, there's this new movement out called SEL, social emotional learning, and for me, the tolerance and joy of ambiguity needs to be part of that because you know i think it's it's emotionally unsettling it's it's complex but but we need to 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 help our kids basically be okay with saying i don't know i don't know and that it's fine and one day we'll learn but it's okay tolerance of ambiguity i think yeah it's such a key key thing because we almost we we don't like it we don't like uncertainty we crave certainty what would that give our kids to be able to have a stronger tolerance of ambiguity so you know i think the fear that people have from from ambiguity is that people would not be committed right imagine you're a ceo in a company and i think people think oh if i tell them we're marching to a people would say oh my goodness we we see that we're following our leader and i think people are worried if somebody would say look we think it's a Let's go full force on A, but we're going to keep an open mind and, and maybe discover that it's B. They, people worry that people will be less motivated to go on A because maybe we'll discover later that it's B. So I do think there's some, there's some downside to it, but I think there's a tremendous upside. And the tremendous upside is that maybe people would keep an open eye and maybe B is the right answer. I think if we find out that A was wrong, people would not lose faith. There's all kinds of things uh, like that. But, you know, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We, we have hypothesis and we just run on the hypothesis. And it's so important to keep, to keep alternative hypothesis in mind. So I, I think it's a real life skill, a very, very beneficial real life skill. In terms of the funnel of misbelief, we've touched on the emotional, the unpredictability of stress, some of the cognitive ways. You also mentioned personality. What's the link with personality Given yeah. it's something that so, can be hard to change, what's the link with that in misbelief? So think about this. Stress creates the need for a story and then people find the story. And then, and then the question is, what kind of personality traits would that make that more appealing or more likely? So first of all, everything that amplifies stress, if person A with the same experience, one person could experience more stress than another, what are the conditions? What gets people to see stories better what get people to adopt stories better so mm-hmm. just as a couple of examples there's a there's a little math problem that we sometimes use called the bat and the ball and the question goes like this a baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together a dollar 10 a baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together a dollar 10 and the bat cost a dollar more than the ball and the question is how much does the ball cost and when you ask people this question most people say it feels like 10 cents and then some people say 10 cents, and some people say, let me check myself. And they say, well, the bat costs a dollar more than the ball, so if the ball is 10 cents, the bat will be a dollar 10. But together, they're a dollar 20, 10 and a dollar 10, but Dan said a dollar 10. Together, they make a dollar 10. That doesn't work. We need to take 10 cents out of the price, five the ball, five the bat. Oh, maybe it's five cents and a dollar five. Yeah, that works. Okay. Simple math. Everybody can do it over, you know, age six, age mm-hmm. nine, let's say. But some people have an answer and they just feel it's right and they don't feel the need to test it. These are people who have very high confidence in their intuition. 
And some people say, it feels thin, but let me check it. And it turns out that the people who go with the 10 cents are much more likely to go down the funnel of misbelief. Mm-hmm. You see a story, whatever, so it feels right. <laughs> let, me, right. let me get into it. By the way, the number of videos that I have seen that says feel right is amazing uh, because a lot of them are very good. Very good. Even think about the, the video I describe of myself, you know, this, this creation of a villain. As a narrative arc, it's really good. Like, you know, in 90 seconds, you have a story about the creation of a villain. Mm. Like, it's it, it, like so concise and, and, and elegant, and here's the reason. And in 90 seconds, you have a story. It's amazing. So that's one personality trait. Another one has to do with creativity, or more about connecting dots. And again, you could see how if you connect more dots, you would see bigger plots. By the way, this is not a bad trait. You would want people to see dots and to be creative and so on, only that it has, like, like lots of things, that they have costs and benefits. People are able to see connection. People are, <laughs> see connections. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, connecting, connecting the dots between the Gates Foundation and uh, the World Economic Forum, and, you know, you just make it, it's... it's it's a journey it's a story. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then there's another trait, another set of traits, which makes some people more sensitive to stress than others. And, and one example for them is narcissism. Now, why would narcissists be more likely to go down the funnel of misbelief? And we're not talking about extreme narcissists. We're just talking about, you know, think about your friends and think about the ones who are higher on narcissism than others. Narcissists thrive on the world giving them good feedback, like the world giving them positive reinforcement. When things are not going well, they are the first one to experience it. They experience the stress extra harsh, so their desire for a story with the villain and so on is much, much higher. So think about those three classes. Mm -hmm. People who trust their intuition, people who can tell better stories, people who experience stress in a deeper way. And when you have any of those, you don't have to have all three of them, each of them lubricates a little bit the, the, funnel, the, the journey down the funnel of misbelief. Mm-hmm. And the final one is social. We, are, yes. we want to belong and feel like we are part of something, even if we're on the inner, inner workings of it. It can be a safeguard, as you said before, from stress, that, that kind of social connection but it also can be be another magnet what role does social play in in this funnel so first of all we 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 said ostracism right so we we already mentioned this force Mm. that pushes people and the research on that is fascinating Uh, we show the the results show that that ostracism gets people to feel reduction in well-being and optimism and uh, they cheat more and they give less and they help less. But that creates a desire for a supportive group. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of terrible things about me. One of them was a blog post about this guy, from this guy, who described my crimes against humanity. And he said that at some point there'll be Nuremberg Trials 2.0, in which uh, the people who've committed crimes against humanity will be judged for their crimes. And he, he asked the question of whether I should get 30 years in prison or a public hanging for my, uh, my role. 
And there's about a thousand comments uh, to him. And in those comments, if you look at the, the, the sentiment, it's very positive toward him, not toward me. People congratulate him on his insight and his analysis and on his creativity and dedication and lots of love and lots of little wonderful emojis. Now, you know, in the same way that we said that, that these misbeliefs are a, a reaction to something, the social support in those groups are not for nothing. They come because of a real need. And the real need is that those people feel ostracized and they don't have a regular support. So where do they find it? They find it among the, their buddies, not, not what we would choose, but that's what they have. And this is why they're so wonderful and supportive. You know, almost every day I see somebody in those groups deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, you know, uh, like in, in academic circle, nobody ever gives anybody compliments on anything. But, but in those groups, the compliments are are amazing, the, the support they love. And then there are two, the two other parts that are important. Uh, one is escalation. You know, if you're part of a group, let's say there are 100 people in the group and everybody, and, and you want to get some positive feedback, you want to get some, some love, you can't say something that is just standard. Let's say you're, you're on, the, on the American right side, you can't say uh, Trump was the best American president ever. Everybody agrees with that. And if you're on the left, you can't say gender is very complex and people should have the right to use whatever pronouns they want. Everybody is saying that. Mm -hmm. If you want to be shown, you need to say something extreme. Like you need to say, in fact, Trump is still the president. Right. He is still flying Air Force One. And Or you could say, uh, on, if you're on the other side of the map, you would say gender doesn't exist. But you say things that you don't necessarily believe to show your identity. Now, of course, after people saying them multiple times and after you have to defend yourself, you might start believing them. But initially, it's, it's a game of identity and signaling. And, and then the final component is cognitive dissonance. Now, we all know cognitive dissonance, right? And the, the standard example from, uh, from Festinger was this story about this woman who believed that the world would, would end and only her followers would be saved. And, and Festinger wondered what would happen to her hardest followers. And you could say that they would be the one who would be the most disappointed and they would go home. Or you could say they're the one who committed so much that they can't admit that they were wrong and they would double down on their beliefs. And what he found was exactly that. He found that the, the people who the most the strongest supporters, the ones that gave up their homes and sold their properties and said goodbye to everybody, couldn't say, well, we were wrong. So they said, wow, she saved us. And they started recruiting more people and raising more money and all kinds of things like that. And, and this is also important because it means that once people finish with one misbelief, think COVID, they're not going to go home. <laughs> now, now they need to strengthen their belief. So, for example, I see people um, in some of the places that I, that I visit, I see some people have turned anti-medicine. They don't want, they're, they're against standard medical treatments for uh, diabetes, for cancer. Uh, some people are, are anti-climate change. Uh, some people are anti-government control. Some people are against cities where you don't have to drive. But they're expanding the, the scope because 
because after, you know, the, the, the thing about cognitive dissonance is that after you invest so much effort, it basically leads to stronger beliefs. And the same thing we're seeing here, the effort was in the sense of, you know, posting and demonstrating and all kinds of effort leads to, to preference, to preference change. So this, this machine, you know, if we go back to the cookie analogy, is really attacking a lot of us. Like it's, and, and, and we need to recognize it because that's why it's so difficult to, to escape because it's so, so comprehensive. Do you think this is a, a bigger issue now than it has been throughout human yeah. history? <laughs> like, is because I know your I, research, you know, kind of looked at this from a, you know, historical point of view as well. Is yeah, it? I is think. This I, a think conversation I think. I think it is. We need to be having. Absolutely yes. So you know, ten years ago, uh, if you ask me what are the problems that are facing humanity misbelief would not be on it. Now I think it undermines a lot of our discussions. Uh, just imagine that in two weeks we will have COVID-23. I'm not predicting. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> you know. You didn't hear it I'm from not, here I'm first, not, people. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not communicating uh, a message uh, <laughs> from this, but, <laughs> um, but, but just imagine that, that in two weeks we have COVID-23 starting. How ready are we? How many people would, would wake up with their kids coughing with fever and will not send them to school? You know, what's our chances of getting together for anything? You know, I don't think it's one thing. The, the, um, when I started the book, my outline had a chapter on solutions. You know, I didn't get to that chapter. <laughs> and because, because I think, I think there's, there's really a lot of solutions that are needed. It's not, it's not like, oh, you can do A or B or C. No, no, we need to do A and B and C. We need to support each other. We need to teach, uh, you know, online media literacy. We need to figure out how we reduce stress. We need to think about what, what we want social media uh, companies to do. There's a lot of things that we, we need to do. We don't have a simple solution, but think about any large social problem and you will see that we need trust to move on it, right? Like you can say, oh, you know, the, the, the politicians could, could change the rules about superannuation without us. Okay, fine. But for most things, you would say we need, we need to get together. We need to get together in some important way. And our ability to get together is diminished. And, and because we, we have been creating this machine for a while, there's lots of broken pieces. Mm. You know, identity politics is terrible. Um, companies in the U.S. now tell people not to talk about sensitive topics at work. How would we ever find commonality how would we ever find uh, ways to talk to each other we don't want to go home and fight with our spouse we usually also marry somebody with similar opinions our opportunities are quite limited to to do this like so so we don't talk about it we don't expose to it we have identity politics uh, we, we, we spend a lot of time in social media by the way with social media um, there's a lot of elements I'll just give you one example what is a thumbs up. A thumbs up could be, I agree with this. It could be, I vouch that this is true. It could be, I find this to be ridiculously funny and impossible. <laughs> now, now th this, this is just a very impoverished language. Mm. 
it's not, you know, there's questions about algorithms, there's lots of questions, but, but just think about this issue. When you have a ridiculous, a ridiculous belief, what are people thinking that they're doing? Are they thinking that they are supporting that belief? Are they thinking that they are vouching that it's true? Are they saying it's ridiculous? Mm. It's a mix of all of those. Like, like how can you, what's the signal in that when you say, oh, we got 720 likes? What, what yeah. exactly is that? We don't have the nuance to yeah. actually dive into right. that conversation. How do we practice trust uh, when we find ourselves in a cycle of, of mistrust? Not easy, but I think that the way to play with trust is we all have to trust first. Like, you know, if we go around the world and we say, oh, let's other people trust us, then we'll trust back. That's, that's not very helpful. And I think the, the government has to, has to trust first. So, you know, just, just think about, like, what is trust? Uh, trust is about long-term aligned incentives. If I knew that you and I are going to go and have dinner once a week for the next 10 weeks, let's say 10 years even, we both have a vested interest in, in learning together, in, you know, enjoying our time together, and, and, and so on. Trust is, is basically saying what's good for me is what's good for you. And we need to kind of figure out how do we make that, that clear. It's, it's true in many cases, but we just need to make it clear. Hmm. Uh, another version of trust is to give people position of power. Uh, we, and we all know that, right? If we went to a social gathering and I wanted you to be more open with me, I would tell you a personal secret. Why? Because I give you power. I say, hey, you know this thing about me. If you wanted to destroy me, you could. Now you feel more comfortable sharing something back. So I think it's about long-term aligned incentives. It's about taking the first step, uh, giving people the feeling, uh, the feeling of control. And you know, it's not as if we can say, oh, you know, let's just give people a sense of trust in education. No, I mean, we, we really need some big, some big steps in that. In a whole range of different areas. I, I'd love to come back to this book and you've said is, is more personal than your other books because of the experience that you've gone through and you've touched on emotionally it being tough. What helped you to navigate that because all the conditions are there well not all of them but some of the conditions are there for you to go down that funnel of misbelief yourself right what so what has helped you even now to navigate that from a personal experience yeah so so first of all let's uh it's it's a it's a funny question it struck me only after the book came out is that I, I kind of did the same thing I said that the misbelievers do right so I said the misbelievers are stressed and they look for a story, and they look for a villain. And this book is really the story of the villain. Like you can say, I went through the same thing that they have done. And now, in my case, the villain at the end of the day is a combination of human nature mm. and technology and a political system. But, but yes, I, I reacted to this stress. And, and my journey was to, was to go out on a, on a, on a story. I, like, I didn't find a YouTube video and said, okay, this is my explanation. But I did go on a, on a journey to, to figure out what went wrong. But that's, that's, that's kind of one answer. The, the second answer is that I am very blessed with, with resilience. And um, 
I, I would say there's like three components to my resilience. One is my injury. And, you know, I've gone through some really tough things. And I have everything else looks to me in proportion. Like, okay, it's a little funny to say or strange to say, but because my injury has so many physical aspects, I can't forget about it. Right? If somebody had uh, cancer, you know, they might not remember it. I remember, I, I look at, every time I look at my hand, it's very clear. Everybody that shakes my hand, it's very clear. So I have a very, I have, I have a perspective on just being alive and not in the hospital bed and with less pain is, is amazing. Yes. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's one. The second is, you know, friendship. I grew up in Israel was born in New York, but grew up in Israel. And friendship in Israel is incredibly deep. So if I, if I think about the question of, if I was arrested and I need somebody to fly 12 hours and pay $50,000 to release me on bail, how many people would do it and who they would be, these are all friends in Israel. So I have this, uh, this group of people that I think there's no limit to what they would do for me and, and no limit to what I would do for them. Like there's a, in a single call, I say, I really need X, X will happen. And of course, the same thing would happen on the other side. And, and that's an incredible, an incredible feeling. And, and, and the last is that I feel, I feel the same sense of, of resilience in my romantic life. Uh, and that's also provides a lot of a lot of a lot of force mm. uh, for doing for doing that and and you know when we when we think about social resilience we know for example that as inequality increases resilience goes down as kids are spending less time playing together and more time playing remotely uh, the, the friendship that i cherish so much so much goes down so so also, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, trend. If you look at, again, this is the U.S. In the 60s and 50s, men would go to work, and after work they would go to the pub and they would hang with their buddies, and only later they will go home. And the women, of course, will do their own, their own thing. But the social networks were very different. The, the, the friendship uh, networks were very different. And we've moved to a society that is much more about the nuclear family and much smaller and with less friends, and, and women are, are ahead of the game compared to men uh, in terms of friends. You know, they, that for, for most men, their wife is their best friend. For most women, their husband is not <laughs> I've, I've their best that friend. I've heard yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, but, but these, these social networks, these friendship networks are incredibly important. And uh, they require it's, an it's, investment. I mean, there's... There is, right. you know, research around loneliness, people yeah. identifying as feeling lonely, even surrounded by people, even with great social media networks, that yeah. that is increasing. And so where yeah. you, it's not a small thing when you talk about having those people who would come and bail you out, who would be yeah. there in a moment's notice. Uh, yeah. And they don't just it's, happen, it's, um, it's an investment. That's right, that's right. I think that, that's important to... I, I don't want to people to say oh you know, you know I need let, let me let me write a love note to my significant other because I need to invest in this I, but but look one of the challenges is that that sending a quick note on WhatsApp 
is much easier than inviting somebody to come and have beer together. And, 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 and we do more of this and less of that. And, and we feel that we've done something for our friendship. But we haven't done much. And, and I think we need, we need to, to create some better rules around that. So, you know, the, the term investment, I don't like the negative connotation of mm-hmm. it, like something you have to do even if you don't want to. But I agree with you that we, we certainly need to, to change our priorities so that, so that our romantic and, and social life are, are, are deeper and more meaningful. And, you know, when, when, when life, life goes along a path and then bad things happen and then we start bouncing back, sometimes we get back to where we were, sometimes we get better, sometimes we get worse. That's, people think about that as, as resilience, as how much we bounce back. But there's another element, which is uh, how often do we walk around the world feeling that there are people on our side, that if something bad happened, there will be, there will be support. Uh, if something happened, uh, there'll be somebody to catch us and so on. And, and that only creates with investment and including, including vulnerability. So, so my, my super, this is not research, this is just opinions. But I think that discussions uh, among men uh, often tend to be a little superficial. It's easier to talk about sports and the weather. Uh, it's a little more difficult to talk about how are you managing your credit card debt or what, what do you feel insecure about in your relationship. Mm-hmm. I, I think women are a little bit better at this, men are a little bit worse, but it's not just the time. It's about being open to, to creating deeper, deeper connections. And the vulnerability, almost the, the word generosity of going first in those yep. conversations can be, yeah, where, where that courage and bravery comes from. Really important conversations. Dan, your book, Misbelief, is so intriguing, fascinating, and there are small practical takeaways, even things down to when you are searching up as something that you're curious about to search the opposite, to you know, be open to, to different things. There are, there are really practical tips in there. What do you hope people take away from reading your book? So I think three things. One is if you have a misbeliever in your neighborhood, <laughs> you know, in your social neighborhood, maybe, maybe you could have a slightly better attitude to them and, and be able to help. I think the second thing is for all of us to take a deeper look at our beliefs and kind of in the nature of the, our beliefs and where we got them and how sure we are. And the third is, I think we need to make this a priority. I think that this question of misinformation, corrosive information, misbelief needs to be um, elevated. It's, it's a problem that we need to start, to start addressing. And I hope that if more people spend time thinking about how big and complex this problem is, maybe we'll start getting going on it. It is big. It is complex. It does require us to sit in it. Uh, It's not a quick fix, but it's a really important one. Dan, I really appreciate your time. One final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. You've shared a little bit about your life, but when you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? So I think it's about life has lots of constraints. Some of them are physical. uh, Some of them are social, uh, some of them are by convention. Uh, I think for me, it's about asking the question of what, what of those, which one of those constraints 
should not apply in general and should not apply to us and, and test it and test whether uh, we would be better off breaking those uh, social rules. Sign up for that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dan. Lovely, lovely to spend time with you. you've enjoyed this conversation then let's keep the conversation going the main place that i hang out is on instagram at ali hill a-l-i-h-i-l-l one of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review standout life podcast whatever platform you are listening to you can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out and if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of then please share share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in, for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill.